Good morning, everyone. The theme for this semester is the discipleship of the body. We are building a theology of the body, and my goal this whole semester is going to give you the seven key building blocks for a theology of the body. In my mind, this is one of the most important uh, theologies to develop in our day today. What is a theology of the body? It's a Christian understanding of the very nature of human embodiment. And one of the grand themes of all of these sermons this semester is that God has interwoven into our very bodies pointers to great spiritual mysteries. And I've suggested that our bodies are actually like icons or windows which point us to things which help us to gain a deeper understanding of God's work and God's purposes in our lives. Well, since today is the seventh and last building block of the theology of the body, I thought it'd be nice if we did a little review of the six building blocks which have led us to where we are today. Uh, Building block number one is that creation is good and therefore it is trustworthy. Uh, At the dawn of creation, we're told that God created the world through his own purposes and design. The world is not here because of an errant ray of sun hit some primordial blob. It's here because God fashioned it for his purposes and to display his glory. Uh, The very early church battled the idea of Gnosticism, a great uh, and ancient heresy which the church battled, which taught us that the body was untrustworthy, that the real you is trapped inside your body, a doctrine which is coming back upon the church today. And the church must once again reaffirmed that the body is trustworthy because creation is good. And by Genesis 1.31, God has seven times declared that creation is good. Believe about number two is that our bodies are actually our icons or pointers to spiritual mysteries. We find that when God created the world, he fashioned our bodies already in anticipation that someday he would send his very son as an incarnation into the world. Now, we realize that for us, uh, from creation to the cross of Christ or the incarnation, here we are in Advent. We're actually at this very season celebrating God stepping into human history in time. We realize that when God created the world, it wasn't future for him. The whole of human history is in the eternal now. It's all eternally present for God. So even at creation, God is already anticipating what for us is in our future, that his son would step into human history in Jesus Christ. Now in Hinduism, God becomes a tortoise. God becomes a boar. There's no understanding of how God actually designed our bodies as the very proper agents to manifest his glory most appropriately in the world. So our bodies are pointers to that mystery. Every human body is a pointer to the mystery of God's incarnation. We find, of course, as Christ came, that all the means of grace, which we explored last year here at Asbury, all the means of grace are actually channels through which God conveys his grace to us. So we saw the the baptism and Eucharist and scripture reading, all of that serving the poor all happens to the body Our bodies are baptized. We take the Eucharist with our bodies. We hear scripture with our ears. We preach it with our tongues. Our feet go out and serve the poor. So the bodies are all are actually the very channel without which there are no bridges for God's grace to be communicated to us. And even as we do those means of grace, they themselves are icons of spiritual mysteries. When we're baptized, we mystically reenact Christ's death and resurrection, right? 
When we take the Eucharist, we're bringing in mystically Christ's body and blood into our lives. We become in Christ in that way. When we proclaim the gospel, it's God proclaiming his word through us. When we go and serve the world and go into a world of pain and darkness, we are reenacting the incarnation in little form, in seed form. We reenact darkness going into light. So all the means of grace are displayed in and through the body. So the first two building blocks about the created body. The next three are all about how our bodies are related to other bodies. The divine design for marriage and childbearing and then celibacy and same-gender friendships. With marriage, the third building block, we remembered that not only is the body an icon of the incarnation, but in marriage, the marriage is an icon or a pointer to the mystery of Christ and his church. And we saw in that sermon how God gave us a unique design for marriage. Marriage is not, as our cultures defined it, a socially constructed arrangement which, uh, you know, to meet our social needs, cultural needs, sexual needs, economic security, all of that. Instead, the, the Bible just says that actually marriage is a covenantal mystery which points to divine realities, ultimately Christ and the church. And therefore, there's four features of God's design we looked at. It is unitive. The two shall become one flesh. It's procreative. Be fruitful and multiply. It's binary. He created male and female. Is donative or self-giving that we find in Ephesians 5 that actually marriage points the mystery of Christ giving himself to the world. And so husbands are to lay down their lives for their wives and wives submit to the husbands. These are mutual sacrificial uh, acts that celebrate God's own sacrifice of himself in the world. And the fourth building block, of course, was childbearing as a reflection of the Trinity, that when we actually give birth to children, we are celebrating a new community. Uh, we're actually allowed to create new image bearers. So God actually permits us to enter into the mystery of what it's like to be a creator. We become little creators as we create new image bearers. And of course, none of this possible without him, but he allows us to be brought up into that. And we, of course, begin to create a new micro-community. And the micro-community is not a family unit. It's a family community. Father, son, and child, or father, mother, and child represents the reflection of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And of course, childbearing, we also saw, was a, and is a great means of sanctification. Uh, everyone who has a child knows that the moment you have a child, it automatically forces you to turn yourself outward. We talked about how Augustine uh, probably gave us probably one of the best definitions of sin. He calls it what he calls the incurvatus in se, turning the heart in upon itself. So that whole inward gaze, and we can see in our culture today, as our culture retreats from a Christian worldview, there's probably no greater sign of it than the dramatic rise of the inward gaze. The self-orientation has engulfed our society. But the Christian orientation and childbearing is the great means of this, forces you to look outward. It forces you to care for another. It's one of the great ways we're reminded that at the root of sin, Augustine argued, is not simply the rejection of a God's commandment, that is to disobey God's commands. It's never less than that. But the deeper point is it's a rejection of a relationship with God. And therefore, it's actually turning your heart in on itself. This is why C.S. Lewis in his The Great Divorce very powerfully illustrates that hell 
is above all else a place of utter aloneness. The fifth building block was the was celibacy, and we saw how God not only created uh, the the spousal meaning of the body, but He created the celibate meaning of the body. And we talked about how the celibate life allows us to understand in a profound way what it means to have that single focused life that God calls upon special people who will do certain things that cannot be done without complete life focus on that. We also saw how Jesus himself said in Mark 12, 25, in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So we learned that in the resurrection, there is no marriage, which means that marriage is itself a pointer to a divine mystery of Christ and the church, the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And so there's certain people who are called and who already anticipate in the present time the future eschatological reality to which we're all headed. And they are now already married to Christ, as it were, even in the present age. So the, you might say the marriage of the Lamb has already broken it upon us in the lives of those who are celibate. We also saw that our overly sexualized culture has robbed us of same-gender friendships, one of the great relatedness which has been robbed to us in an overly sexualized society. Well, the last two building blocks have to do with the sacramental presence in the world of our embodiment. And we saw particularly last time in the sixth building block that our bodies are meant to be sacraments on mission in the world. We looked at this word sacrament, which means a holy mystery. It comes from the, the Latin word sacer and the Greek mysterion. It's a holy mystery. And so we often have in present theology this idea that the ministry of the, of the, of the priesthood or the pastors is word and sacrament. And it's conceptualized, I think, somewhat limitedly by saying the word is our public ministry to the world and the sacraments are God's ministry of healing and grace to the church. But the point of problem with that is it portrays the word as the public, something God does out there, and the sacraments of what God does inside the church. We actually realize, of course, that in fact that only tells half the story because the word of God is also God's word to us, is it not? And the sacraments are not simply what God does in our lives, but as we take the sacrament, we ourselves are transformed. We take in his broken body. We become God's broken body in the world. We become God's blood poured out into the world for the sake of the world. And so we saw that this is that great missional impulse of what it means to be a sacrament in the world, a holy mystery walking into the world. That's why I told all the students here that you should never forget what Martin Luther said in 1521 at Marburg Castle when he threw the inkwell at the devil. What did he say? You remember? He said, Baptizatu sum. I am baptized. Not I was baptized. I am baptized. Meaning, I stand as a baptized person in the world. I stand against the devil and all of his works because I am baptized. I am in that sacred space. It's actually about our mission in the world. Well, we come today to the final and uh, seventh building block of this amazing theology of the body we've explored this semester. And this is, by the way, just the thumbnail of the richness of this theme, but we're trying to hit the main items. But the seventh building block is our embodiment in the sacramental mystery of life itself. Now, for many years, uh, earlier, when I first, my first few years here, my 
colleague here at Asbury, J.D. Walt, uh, included, uh, he's now our vice president of Seedbed, he included a little byline at the bottom of his email. Uh, said this, changing the world one email at a time. I have seen that dozens of times, of course, because we interact a lot through email. And I thought about that. You know, actually, it's quite profound, isn't it? That there's something sacramental, something sacred about even the most mundane aspects of our lives. And whenever we talk about all of the repetitive, mundane acts of our lives, there's a fancy word for this. It's called the quotidian task. It's a word that refers to all the things that we do in our lives, and we all have them in this room. Things that we do repetitively. Think about it. Washing dishes, folding clothes, vacuuming floors, taking showers, washing your hair, preparing meals, taking out trash, changing diapers. Should I I keep going? Putting gas in the car, brushing teeth, weeding the garden, making up grass beds, mowing grass, and yes, even sending emails. The point is that there's no end to this list, right? This all reflects common rhythms of life which are shared by everyone throughout the world. Now, of course, this building block is important because what I'm arguing is that our daily task and the ordinary duties of life, these quotidian mysteries, they serve as sacramental markers of God's embodied presence in the whole of life. Now, I know that many of you here at Asbury have been awakened to the church year, and I actually celebrate that. It's wonderful. And so many of you know that the church will uh, organize its rhythms and how we remember the gospel well by following through a, a cycle of Sundays to the church year from Advent, where we are joyfully now, uh, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Ascension, all the way to Pentecost. But you'll know that it just covers half of the year. And then you go into this space called ordinary time. Now, many of you believe, wrongly, that when you get to ordinary time, that means that the church year stops. But actually, what I want to argue is that there is a liturgy of ordinary time. The first half of the year, we recall God's sacred acts, things that God did once in the history of the world. These are all once in history events where God enters the world. God dies on the cross. These are all singular events that are non-repeatable. But then half of the year, we recall God's great actions in the midst of all the repetitive, ordinary things of life that happen every single day. In fact, the the repetitive tasks are, in fact, we need to look at them again more closely. And we're really indebted, by the way, to some of these wonderful female theologians like Kathleen Norris and Tish Harrison Warren, among others, for raising our awareness of the theological significance of all of these daily tasks. She makes the point, uh, Kathleen Norris does in her book, The Quotidian Mysteries, that even if we arise ourselves economically to free ourselves from many of these tasks, the tasks actually never disappear. We simply pay somebody else to do them. Clothes must still be folded. Grass must still be cut. Gas must still be placed in vehicles. The point is these tasks do, they cannot disappear These tasks are ever before us. And so what happens is we've developed the idea these tasks should be demeaned or they're 
regarded as a waste of time or pointless endeavors so we can get on to the real work of life. And we miss the liturgical rhythms that God has designed these daily tasks as daily reminders of the application of the principle of the Eucharist, the sacramental heart of the gospel. This is my body given for you. Now, we see that as the singular act of God in Jesus Christ on the cross. But in this seventh building, we see that it actually has to have that ripple effect so that it comes out in our lives through all the daily tasks we say to our, our, our spouse or to our parents or to our brothers and sisters, our friends. As we do these tasks, this is my body given for you. I'm doing this as an act of service to you. It's part of the self-giving to the creation. So all these menial tasks uh, are actually reflecting the self-giving of God in the world. That's why scripture, Paul says, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. This is that quotidian mystery. This is the great sacramental presence that our bodies being offered as sacrifices daily. Paul says in Corinthians, I die daily. This is actually reflecting that great sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that, that in this Eucharistic event where Christ takes bread and cup, that he takes the one quotidian task that you cannot delegate, you cannot pay anyone else to do, and that is eating. He takes the most mundane, regular, you know, two or three times, four times a day act that we do of eating, and he turns that into the greatest mystery of his self giving the world. This is my body given for you. So we have wrongly, I think, missed the fact that the ordinariness of life is embedded deeply in spiritual realities. Now, many of us have grown up in the idea that, and unconsciously accepted the idea, that we live in a world, uh, in a, a place where you get up in the morning or whenever you do it and you have your daily quiet time. You have a certain kind of rhythms that you go through to prepare yourself before God, which is, by the way, a wonderful practice. I highly recommend it. I practice it myself. But then we, this is where we make a mistake, we then leave the presence of God and go out into the world where we regard God as largely absent. That's the problem. We separate spiritual work from secular work. And this is where we have to recognize that the power of God's sacramental presence in the whole of life now, we know that the fall did introduce brokenness into all of life, including our work. There are thistles and thorns that come into the ordinariness of life. It can be challenging. It can feel like drudgery. It can be extremely challenging. But work is redeemed, not annihilated, in the new creation. We're told that the glory and the honor of the nations are brought into Jerusalem, not shut out of it. In fact, we don't want to tell it in Micah, that great eschatological passage. Micah does not say, we throw away our swords and spears and you know, push them into dust. No, he said, we beat our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. The point is that we actually are recalled or go back to the dawn of creation where God put them to work in the garden to do meaningful work. Because the garden, that's before the fall, by the way, there was meaningful work. Now, I know one of my past I respect, uh, Glenn Parkinson, who is uh, now recently retired from uh, Savannah Park, Maryland, was once asked, will there be computers in heaven? 
Now think about that one. His answer was great. I think it was the right theological answer. When he was asked, will there be computers in heaven? He said, I don't know, but if we need them, we will build them. Now that is the right instinct. The point is, there's nothing in this world that would be necessarily cut out of the new creation because we have, if we need it, we'll build it, we'll do it. Because all of the, the created energy of life is redeemed, not annihilated, the new creation. We're not simply on clouds, we you know, with, uh, with harps. We are engaged in divine work. We don't know, it's a mystery what that will involve, but we will be engaged in the, in the great work of, of God's calling for all of us. This is why we have to challenge, I think another great point of this sermon is to challenge the, quote, culture of retirement. Many ways this plays out in our culture is this. We go through life, we, quote, put our time in, you know, our work life is drudgery, 30, 40 years, so we can some point, get to a point, we go into the paradise of retirement. Now, this is a demon which must be cast out. Because the whole point is that your whole life is meant to engage and energize with God's calling, God's purpose, whatever your calling is. Whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be in a spiritual vocation. It can be because all the vocations are indeed embedded in spiritual truths. And so the whole point is, if we simply uh, relegate ourselves to, so that retirement becomes masquerades as the new creation, so we live our lives looking for this 20-year period, the end of our life, where we live in this new creation point. That is not biblical vision. God is giving us the new creation uh, at the future time. When I was growing up, I uh, had the, the experience from age 6 to age 16, 10 years every Labor Day, uh, I would be serving. Uh, my father was a big uh, member of the Lions Club, and we had every Labor Day was spent holding a fish fry uh, on behalf of the blind. And when I was a little boy, I was only six years old, my dad would stack up these wooden crates that used to be Cokes used to come in bottles and they were in crates and he set those crates up and stand me on top of those crates because I was so short. I was only this high. And he had to put me up on those crates to serve the, uh, the Coca-Cola, which was then served to people that came to the line buying fish, the proceeds of which going to the poor or to the, to the blind. We did that. I did that every, every year of my life. And as I got older, he removed the boxes until eventually I stood on the, on the ground, and I, I served Coke. My parents never really, I, they never explained it, the whole theology of it to me, but I realize now, looking back on it, that they inherently understood that especially on Labor Day, when just to stop and, you know, we take a day for ourselves, it was good to remember on that day of all days those who are less fortunate than you are and to see it as a day of service to the world. I thank my parents for that. Well, we're at a close now. Let me just close by making this point about this particular seventh building block. I believe that this building block absolutely uh, challenges three amazing problems that we have to address as a church. And I think it's, you know, in some ways it's interesting that this whole seven building block starts out with God creating the world and it ends with us changing diapers, as it were. And so the whole point is it fills the whole frame of life. And by doing that, it challenges, number one, 
the false separation of clergy and laity. It actually empowers the whole of God's people. Second, it challenged the modern notion, which has pervaded our society, that only financially compensated work matters, and it devalues all work that's not financially compensated. And you all know how this works in our society. If someone does a work that is not financially compensated, we do not value that work. And yet the most important work of all, roles like father, mother, brother, sister, friend, those great roles are not financially compensated, but are among the most important embodiments in the world. And third, this seventh building block destroys the fatal separation between spiritual work and secular work, which has plagued our civilization for centuries. So the theology of body begins with God creating the world. It ends with us changing diapers and mowing the grass. Isn't it interesting that we saw how the Eucharist happens in the body and baptism happens in the body? All these glorious means of grace happen in the body. But what we're also remembering is that mowing the grass also happens in the body. Changing sheets also happens in the body. All of these things happen in the body because we live in that sacred space called Jesus Christ, and he declares all things good. Tish Warren humorously records a sign she saw in a new monastic community which said this, Everyone wants a revolution. No one wants to do the dishes. It's a great reminder, isn't it? To never forget that all of life is sacramentally connected. Do not allow the disconnect to enter into your life. Part of a robust theology of the body is to recapture the great spiritual purposes of the whole of our lives and all that we do. And he, in fact, fills the whole frame. Thanks be to God. Amen.